Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we're going to discuss how the COVID pandemic is forcing educational institutions, from primary schools to universities, to reinvent how they teach our children in a way that makes it accessible and equitable for all. They're also being challenged to consider how to compensate for the ways virtual learning doesn't foster their social and emotional development. So we'll look at that as well. And I'm reminded of that well-known back-to-school commercial. Parents are dancing in the store aisles to the tune of it's the most wonderful time of year, while the kids are miserable that summer is over. Today, after months at home with mom and dad and playing mainly with siblings, children will probably be as, as ecstatic as their parents at the prospect of actually returning to the physical classroom. We're incredibly fortunate to have with us today Paul Rebel. Paul is an expert in the field of education um, for many, many years. Not only is he the former Secretary of Education for the state of Massachusetts, he is also the founder of the Harvard Education Design Lab, which they actually call the Redesign Lab because they're very focused on redesigning the paradigm of education. Paul is a professor at Harvard, He is the Francis Keppel Professor of Practice and Education Policy and Administration at the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure to be with you, Tony. So let's get into it and start with where everything begins, which is at home, and really start with sort of the idea around what do you think is going to sort of happen this fall as we start to see schools struggle to reopen. We've already had a dose of learning from home where in the sort of older cohort of kids, they can do some online remote learning. For the younger kids, of course, um, particularly the ones that aren't even in kindergarten yet, that's not possible. So let's just start with, you know, what do you expect to happen in the fall? Well, it's a big and unsettling question, both for educators, for employers, for parents in particular, for all of us in society, because education has such an important um, value, not just in schooling and doing what we think of as conventionally the role of education, which is, uh, you know, English and math and science and preparing people to be successful and to get into college and to have careers. It also provides a daycare function in our society where with two working parents, a lot of single parent households, Uh, Parents are unable to go to work unless they have uh, the daycare function that school provides. And so in the midst of this coronavirus crisis, where we're uh, daily reading about changes in, in, you know, probability and risk factors and things of that nature, uh, educators and education leaders are now trying to make predictions about what happens in the fall. The best guesses right now are And what I know most systems to be doing is preparing really for three scenarios. One is that uh, everybody returns to school more or less as normal with some new procedures and practices relative to social distancing, relative to uh, testing and, um, and contact tracing and isolation if problems emerge. And we do the best we can to restore a sort of back to the status quo ante. Uh, A second model is uh, the opposite extreme, which is to say uh, everything will be remote. We're not going to try and bring everybody back because it seems likely that education is going to be disrupted 
and to try and do a little bit of online and a little bit of in-person is just too complicated, unsettling, and overwhelming. So we'd be better off just taking the fall uh, to perfect the uh, online learning environment and do uh, education that way. And then uh, finally, there's a hybrid model that basically mixes elements of both and suggests, so maybe we'll have students come in two days, Monday and Tuesday, have a day on Wednesday where everybody's remote, and then have a different group of students come in on Thursday and Friday, and the ones who were in school on Monday and Tuesday learn remotely on Thursday and Friday. So you have staggered schedules and uh, and, and this meets some of the health needs, the distancing needs that will require us to have fewer students in classrooms, fewer students on buses, things of that nature. But it also requires the system to do both remote and in-person simultaneously. And, uh, and so that's very challenging, nor does it particularly solve the daycare issues that parents will have with respect to how they care for their children if they're on a half-time school schedule or let alone if they have different children in different schools on different schedules. So it's all very complicated and up in the air, and it's an overwhelming task uh, to do scenario planning for this. But that, that's what school systems are in the middle of doing right now. So it sounds like it's going to be a hodgepodge, and the experience that any given family and group of kids are going to have is really going to be a function of what's going on from a public health standpoint in the community where that family lives and what decisions the school department has made. It's heavily contextual. It really depends on what's happening uh, surrounding the environment. It also depends on the capacity of school systems. I mean, we've seen some school systems that have readily adapted to, because they had prior history, some experience and, and significant capacity in doing remote learning. Other districts, just haven't had the capacity to do this. They've had little prior experience and they've been catapulted into the world of online education virtually overnight. And many of these districts uh, have huge equity issues in terms of the distribution of, of uh, educational equipment, applications of uh, ed technology, uh, and access to the internet uh, that have overwhelmed them in the early stages of dealing with this. So it has a lot to do with the capacity of of school systems. I mean, I think one of the things that you can stand back and look at is that this crisis in school closing has exacerbated inequities that already existed in society. So both families and school systems um, that had sort of wealth and social capital tended to have better resilience and are better able to cope with the um, ups and downs of what this crisis has meant for education and for children being at home. It's fascinating that this is happening at the same time that we're having this incredible resurgence of our consciousness of race and of class division within our society, that they're dovetailing together in this way. Let's, just, let's start at the top of the pyramid. Let's assume it's a relatively you know, well-funded, well-run system. What is the ability of the system to deliver an effective outcome for that child, both from the perspective well, of the academic learning, but also, Paul, from the perspective of just general development. I mean, in my case, I have a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old, and even if those kids are able to keep up academically without having the peer experience, I feel like developmentally, they're going to, you know, they're going to fall behind. So I'm really interested to hear about just the general efficacy of this remote learning 
in terms of just getting the, the basic ABCs into the kids' heads, but also what does it do to them developmentally? The Mandarin word for education contains two concepts, two characters. One is, um, you know, to teach, and the other is to nurture, and, and nurturance is about relationships. Uh, and so I say that as a framework for responding to your question, and to start at the top of the pyramid, as you suggested, well-endowed school systems who have a history with doing online learning and are using some of the best tools and applications can do a pretty good job of conveying a lot of the content that we associate with education. What they can't substitute is the socialization function in education, the relationship of peer-to-peer and the relationship of students to educators. And at its core, education, at least in my view, is always about and mitigated by curated through relationships that we have with teachers. That's the biggest loss uh, for many students in the uh, whole crisis of school closing is that um, those relationships have been fractured. And if we're in an online environment, those of us who are teaching in that environment have to be much more attentive to how, given the remote and impersonal nature of online education, you can cultivate relationship building. I'd love to hear you also talk a bit more about the relationship between the student and the student. In other words, the need developmentally for students and kids to be interacting with their peers. What are your thoughts around that aspect of it? There's a great deal of um, research to underline the importance of the relationships that I've just been discussing, for example, teacher-student relationships, as being critical motivators. I mean, one of the things we don't think enough about in school is what motivates, what animates, what inspires children to learn. You know, we think a lot about achievement gaps, but we also have another element of gaps that I talk about, which is inspiration gaps. You know, what makes young people want to come to school in the first place in order to do some of the more mundane aspects, the less sort of invigorating, exciting aspects of learning that we need to do? You know, for example, rote practice of certain functions in math that you need to do in order to get competent at doing it. You might not be drawn to that unless you had a teacher who you were really connected to, or unless you were playing a team sport and the team sport required you to come to school or in a club, or you wanted to see your peers there, and that was the reason you went to school, and the the norms and culture of your group of friends helped you sort of reach and do your best in terms of the work that you're doing. The development of norms and relationships and a culture within a school makes the difference between students who feel connected and part of the education experience and those who feel alienated and drift away from it. You know, the thing that we like to emphasize most in, in secondary education is, the, you know, the education experiences ought to have rigor, they ought to have relevance, and they ought to have relationships connected with them. Those are the three elements that seem to make the most difference. And right now, there's a lot of emphasis on deeper learning in which we're using the experiences in the surrounding world. And now's an ideal time to exploit that since people are at home to deepen the connection of students, of of the knowledge that students are getting and the skill that they're getting in school to problems and challenges that exist around them. It might be as simple as cooking a meal or balancing a checkbook or 
thinking about bringing about a change in policy in your community? And how do you apply the skills and knowledge that you're getting in school to solving that particular problem? I think we're going to have to be creative and innovative in our thinking. And I think if we do so, we'll have changed the nature of education permanently as a result of adaptations that we've made in this crisis. I think that um, the reason that my kids want to go to school is to see their friends. <laughs> um, and that's a big right. motivator. Yep. And so when they're at home and they don't have the ability to see their friends, their motivation is is really reduced. Just last night, my wife said to the kids, okay, each of you guys is going to cook dinner one night this week. So tell me what you need me to buy at the store. And by the way, that includes cleaning the dishes as well. <laughs> um, yep. So um, I'm a little bit apprehensive about that. Now, nonetheless, yeah. hopefully it'll be, it'll be a good lesson. Turning the daily life and the challenges of daily life into a curriculum. And, uh, yeah. and that can be done. And there are lots of resources at our disposal. Let's shift to higher education now. Certainly when you get into college and you go from being a young person or a child to being an adult, that happens as you traverse college. So what kind of experience um, in the American paradigm of college do you think that kids are going to confront? And then I want to get into talking about how this impacts the institutions, because while we don't really think of them as businesses, even the ones that are not-for-profits, they are businesses, and this is going to impact them profoundly. Well, there's no question, Tony, that this, but they're both short-term disruptions and long-term disruptions uh, as far as higher education goes. And I, I would predict uh, here and now that in higher education, we're going to see the most profound long-term impacts of this crisis. Higher ed's at a tipping point because of the, because of the pricing model and because the, uh, the sort of status quo approach in higher education has been in place for so long. Uh, and, uh, and it's straining under the, uh, you know, the, the rising costs, the rising student debt and the, you know, the growing unaffordability for many Americans of higher education. So this crisis coming in the midst of that challenge in that field, uh, is going to yield some very substantial changes over time, I think. In the near term, uh, you know, you're going to see just the same kind of uncertainty that we talked about with respect to K-12. But it's even more profound in higher education because people have to put deposits down now for college. People have to make plans for where they're going to reside at residential schools. Colleges and universities are looking at their budgets right now for the fiscal year uh, 21. And so a lot of these decisions are coming to a head. And there's enormous uncertainty. And we see colleges having, because their customers are making decisions right now, uh, to make announcements, many of them, in my view, premature about what they're going to do in the fall, because we don't know what the health conditions or parameters are going to be in the fall, but they have to send signals to their customers, if you will, that we're either going to go full tilt and open up as best we can, or we're going to go online. My own institution, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, has decided we're going to do the whole year online. That seemed to be the safest, most efficient, highest quality option we could offer our students as we looked at the uh, likely possibilities and risk associated with next year. Clearly, the, the experience is so much richer when you are on campus and you can interact with not just the relationship with, that, with the teacher, but also the peers. Why would you jump into those precious years of higher education 
rather than going do, and doing something else for a year until things normalize. Well, I think a number of students will make that decision and will have what, what they call uh, admissions melt. Remember, we're a graduate school. We're not undergraduate. So people are coming for master's degrees or doctoral degrees. We have, um, you know, a third of our students come from abroad. And many institutions have significant enrollments of students from abroad, many of them full-paying customers, if you will. And so as a result of the uh, various restrictions on immigration now for a variety of reasons, including health reasons, uh, a lot of those students will have trouble entering the country. So um, the from an institutional standpoint, many of our students can't get to us, so they'll have to make a decision about whether it's better to go remote or better to try and wait this out until another time. You know, for our other students, um, they've they've been admitted. First of all, we're a competitive institution. They've gotten in, and uh, they have the opportunity to do this. We think we can deliver a fairly high-quality product online, but you're quite right. It's not nearly the same thing as being here in person. On the other hand, we can offer a significant price reduction in that you don't have to pay for the residential aspect. And if you plan your courses right, and a lot of our courses, because of the changes in time zones around the world, are going to have to shift to very early morning or very late evening, uh, you may be able to sustain your current employment while doing a, um, a graduate diploma in one year or perhaps spreading it out. So then you have a significant um, gain in terms of you don't have the opportunity cost you would have had if you had had to quit your job and come to campus. So, you know, it's uh, there are pros and cons, and people have to put up a balance sheet. We expect we'll be fully enrolled. A lot of these campuses have very good intentions about how they're going to social distance and and uh, and keep uh, students in isolation and things of that nature. But when you look at human behavior of 18 to 24-year-olds, uh, some of this seems to be sort of uh, wishful thinking in terms of uh, how we're going to keep people apart and so forth. So we expect there to be uh, disruptions and shutdowns in higher education. And I'm not sure that's a very positive prospect to look forward to either. So, yeah, it's a good bridge to talk about the the economic aspects of this experience, this disruption to the institutions themselves, because as I alluded to earlier, they're businesses, even institutions with massive endowments like Harvard that are not-for-profits, they are businesses. And for example, they earn tremendous amounts of revenue from being a landlord, from being a provider of, of, of food service, transportation even in some cases. There's been a lot of conversation, Paul, around how this is going to permanently change the education model, not just even here in the U.S. potentially, but globally, with a real wave of essentially insolvency on the part of a lot of institutions. And then even some of the the more renowned institutions really having to embrace and engage in the online delivery of, uh, of education. Talk to us about how you see all that taking shape. I think the long-term implications are going to be profound because I think this is the sort of cataclysmic disruption in higher education uh, that creates an opportunity for a new paradigm to come in. I mean, higher education has has had a sort of reluctant embrace of online education. A few institutions like uh, University of Southern New Hampshire and uh, the University of Phoenix uh, and, and some others have have uh, specialized in online learning, and we saw a surge in the past 10 years in, in massive online courses and things of that nature. 
but it's been kind of in the background. Now that sort of education has come to the forefront and higher education virtually overnight has been catapulted into the world of doing uh, online remote instruction. The institutions that have big endowments that are relatively wealthy institutions are going to be able to, on the one hand, invest in the capacity to do things like online education more effectively, and on the other hand, be able to weather the shortfalls in their current budgets. Virtually all the colleges are experiencing some kind of shortfall as a result of just the closing for half a semester this year let alone as they look at their budgets for next year. So the wealthy institutions can withstand that. The poorer institutions, the more marginal institutions, are are really going to be on the edge. So I think you're going to see a washout, both in private and public institutions, of ones that didn't have much financial resiliency. And then you're going to see a reassessment, I think, among students and families stepping back and saying, what's the value proposition in higher education? And is it all about getting competencies for jobs? And we've been leaning more in that direction in recent years. We're seeing a slower rate of people filling in their financial aid, their FAFSA forms at the federal level to determine how much financial aid they deserve. I think it's a function of families stepping back and saying, we were going to reach before to do this under normal circumstances, but we can't now. So that the value is going to be seen increasingly as a pragmatic value. How does this give me the competencies that I need to go to work? And the reality is online education can deliver that more personally, more economically, and you can do it at home at low cost without all the expenses of a a residential education. That's going to prove very attractive. I always keep on coming back to this idea that education is not just about learning it's about development. I think very wistfully about my experience in college and in grad school and whatnot. And I think about the formal education, but I also think about all of the extra educational aspects of my experience being so critical. But at the same time, there it seems as though there are some real opportunities here, particularly when it comes to occupational learning and, and re-education. I think that this potentially could present some really amazing opportunities for advancement because one of the things that's happened in society over the last decade, increasingly, is that the digital world has disrupted traditional jobs. And what we see so often is that corporate America is not necessarily committed to retraining our people and people fall out of the work system. Do you think that this is possibly an opportunity with the injection of technology into the educational system to also go after that very critical part of our economy and that cohort of people that need to be retrained or re-educated. I think there's an enormous opportunity, and I think one of the problems in our um, economy is not just sort of internet technology, but but sort of uh, technology generally has moved on well beyond the skill levels of many Americans uh, in in sort of traditional occupations. Well, technology presents, um, you know, as it always has an opportunity for opening up um, the chance to reach people irrespective of place and time. So if the coal industry is having great difficulty in Appalachia, for example, um, and there aren't enough educational institutions right nearby to give people the training they need to move to different skill levels and different uh, occupations, 
Um, the advent of technology and more institutions that have increased capacity due to the adaptations they've had to make in this crisis to reach out to people and make that education available to folks without requiring them immediately to move to get another job, you've just made it more accessible, more possible, and more sort of economically affordable to people who've been stuck or left behind by the economy to reach out and start to build a skill set that may be sort of make them employable in the future. So I think, uh, you know, if we do it right, of course, with technology, there's always a flip side. I mean, it's a great opening, a great possibility uh, for new opportunities. And at the same time, it it can be a disequalizer. It can be uh, something that just exacerbates existing uh, inequalities that already are part of our the fabric of our society. I was reflecting as I was listening to you and thinking about the fact that only two-thirds of the counties in America actually have broadband service. And so when you right. think about what technology does, there's an underlying assumption that these people have some of the basic nuts and bolts capabilities that we now take for granted. It's exemplary of the... Uh, you know, the paradigm shifts that we have to make in education generally, and this applies to early childhood, K-12, and higher ed. We have heretofore thought of, you know, access to Internet as just a, you know, a personal responsibility, a family responsibility. If you either have it or you don't. And, you know, if you come into an institution, you'll get it at the institution while you need it. Now, with, um, you know, school being canceled and people learning remotely, It isn't a nice-to-have, it's an essential-to-have factor. So we have to make a decision. Everybody has got to have access. So suddenly, Internet access has got to be part of somebody's budget. And where it doesn't fit in a lot of family budgets, we've got to make provision to have broadband Internet access available to everyone because it's an essential. It's a prerequisite for being educated now at every single level from early childhood to adulthood. The investor in me, Paul, really focuses on the opportunity that is going to continue to, to accelerate with the big tech stocks because there's no question in my mind that the alphabets and the apples of the world are going to find a way to play a major role in the shift within the educational arena um, and become players in, in that space. And no question about that, as well as entrepreneurs, to deal with some of the challenges you were alluding to earlier. Yes, it's true that it's depersonalizing to take all your academic education over the Internet. At the same time, our kids, you know, with social media and all kinds of ways of hanging out together without being a physical presence, have found ways to use these tools to create a more active, a a different kind of social life than we took for granted when we were children. And I think the entrepreneurs in that space will be welcome and get traction as well. So with that, I know you talk a lot about changing the paradigm in context when you start talking about the redesign lab at Harvard. Right. Let's start with, for our final component of our conversation, talk to us about the premise, the whole premise of the redesign lab at the education school at Harvard and and what what you set out to try to achieve. And then let's talk about how this incredible accelerant of COVID may be creating opportunities or presenting obstacles. What we'd set out to do in education reform, which I've been deeply involved in in Massachusetts, was to educate all children to a level heretofore reserved for an elite few. In other words, to prepare all of our kids to be uh, workers in a high-skill, high-knowledge economy, citizens in a, a complex democracy, heads of families, and lifelong learners. 
And by the time we were done with a very expensive 25, now 30-year effort at education reform, we still have huge gaps. So we built the lab at Harvard to try and say, well, what did we get wrong? What would we need to do differently in order to make sure that we prepare a significantly higher percentage of our students in society um, to the levels that they need to be successful in college and in career? And in doing that, one of the conclusions that we arrived at was that the idea that schools alone could do that job, since schools consume only 20% of a child's waking hours between kindergarten and grade 12, was just a fallacy. It's just simply too weak an intervention. School can make a huge difference for individual kids, and they can defy the odds. But we need to change the odds altogether in the system and build a system that meets every child where they are in early childhood and gives them what they need at each stage of the way, not only in formal education, that's the core pipe and the pipeline, but gives them the supports and opportunities that those of us who have privilege routinely provide for our children. But through the accident of birth, some children get access to healthcare, mental health, good nutrition, stable housing, safe environments being read to every night, and some kids don't. And if we're serious, as I think we need to be from an economic standpoint about educating all of our children to high levels, then we need to build a better system than the one that we have, because the system that we have basically guarantees that your socioeconomic status is the best predictor of your educational achievement and attainment. And Paul, how do you change that? By giving the kind of wraparound supports and opportunities uh, you make those available because those ingredients are what allow those of us who have privilege to achieve at high levels with our children because we can get them all those factors that I mentioned, good nutrition, early childhood education, uh, you know, health care, mental health care, after school, summer learning, uh, internships. For example, to get practical about it, every child ought to have access to summer learning. We have a lot of talk now about how we're going to put summer learning in place for people to compensate for school closings. Well, we have a body of research that shows, irrespective of COVID and long before this crisis, that those who have access to stimulating, enriching opportunities, not necessarily school, but summer camps and travel and all the good things that those who have privilege do with their children, um, those who have access to that surge forward in academic achievement in the fall and those who don't fall back. And so we ought to make summer an entitlement for everybody. We ought to make early childhood, we know from an investment standpoint, you know, for every dollar you invest in early childhood, there's a sevenfold return on investment in the long term. So in terms of education, that's the best possible investment you can make. So what can we do as individuals right now, given that we're stuck in our homes, in order to move the needle forward so that it's not just a idealistic or utopian academic conversation, but we actually can make a difference. Let's end on a point of action, if you will. What should we be doing to try to make a difference? I think one of the things that in our respective communities, we begin to come together and say, you know, how do we take advantage of this crisis in a positive way? A Chinese character for crisis contains two elements. One is about danger, and we certainly we've had danger in terms of this health crisis, but the other is about opportunity. How do we not just think of succeeding in this crisis 
as simply going back to what we were doing before, which I don't think we'll ever do anyway. How do we think of it as a way to do better, to do better by those in our community, not just surviving ourselves, we work uh, at the Ed Redesign Lab with children's cabinets around the country, where in cities all across the country, um, mayors and superintendents convene community leaders and parent leaders and philanthropic and business leaders to come to a table and say, okay, you know, it's not, we, it's too much to ask our schools to do the whole business of developing uh, and educating our children. We need to come together as a community and say, what can we all do? to make sure that everybody has a fair opportunity to succeed in this society. And, you know, we can't do it all at once, so we don't want to be too idealistic, but let's pick a point of entry. Let's focus on getting everybody access to early childhood, for example, or making sure that everybody has access to at least six weeks of enriching activity in the summer, or starting to fill the gaps in building that pipeline that we think is essential for you know, rearing our young people to take their role as leaders in a 21st century uh, economy and democracy. We can serve our children better and, and protect and develop them in ways that will allow the entire community to flourish. And that means overcoming barriers of race and social class and figuring out how we do better to create a pathway for every child to success. Well, Paul, very inspiring, very, very relevant um, and incredibly important for all of our young people and many non-young people in our country. Let me, as I always do, try to leave us with three key takeaways from our conversation. Number one, I think it's really important for us to realize, for those of us that are adults, whether we're parents or grandparents, that we have an outsized role to play in the success of our children negotiating the, the current environment. Uh, you've given us some really interesting ideas, Paul, around what we can do as parents or guides to our children to help them, to inspire them, to give them some direction to negotiate what's a very difficult time. It's a tough summer. It's going to be a tough fall. Hopefully a year from now we'll be through this period and maybe it will have been an opportunity for kids to learn some coping skills and adaptation, but we need to help them along and give them some inspiration and, and, and some ideas on how to do that. Secondly is going to be the incredible shift we see in the delivery of education through technology. We're going to see lots and lots of innovation in technology, and we're going to see through necessity a lot of the higher education system in our country, if not around the world, really have to adopt technologies uh, in order to keep their commerce flowing, if you will, um, during the crisis, and then that's going to have uh, its own legacy um, after the crisis ends, where we're going to continue to see People have become comfortable with that mode of learning, and that'll continue for a long time. And then lastly is really the great ideas that, uh, and great work that you guys are doing within the Harvard Education Lab, Redesign Lab, around how to provide um, really social justice and access to education, doing it on a grassroots level and becoming involved on a grassroots level within our communities to be able to provide not just access to technology, but also then beyond that, access to early childhood education and all the other things that are, are really vital to set people on the course of life so that they can become educated and highly productive and, and happy people. Paul, this has been such an inspiring and important conversation. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Tony. Thanks for your good questions. I think it's really important to think about. This is a pivotal moment, and it's a great opportunity for all of us to uh, to work toward a better society. Yes, very well said. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. <laughs>